We have been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We are now in the concluding section of the sermon. If you were here last Sunday, we began a sermon, and honestly, last week's sermon and this week's sermon are really like two parts of a large sermon. And so, last Sunday, we covered nine marks of a false teacher, and today we're going to cover eight more marks of a false teacher. So, that's the, we're picking up right where we left off from last Sunday, and I'm going to read our passage for us, and then we'll pray. I'm actually going to start before our text, uh, back with the golden rule. So, Matthew 7, verses 12 through 20. And then we'll pray together. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, this is the word of the Lord. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we heed this warning, which is all over the Bible in both Testaments, from the beginning to end of Scripture, we are warned about false prophets and false teachers who will come and appear to be godly. They will appear to lead us in the right way, at least initially in many cases, and yet underneath their sheep's clothing, there is a ferocious wolf that wants to bring spiritual destruction to those the wolf influences. So God, I pray for our church. I pray that we would not be self-righteous at the end of a message on this kind of topic. I pray that we would be discerning. I pray we'd be brokenhearted over false teaching and false teachers. I pray, God, that you would help us to be able to, in a gracious way, lead others that we care about towards more solid biblical teachers and biblical resources than than some that perhaps are popular but not healthy. And I pray that you'd be glorified in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take just a brief moment to review since last Sunday's sermon so much. uh, I'm building off of last week's sermon today. You may remember how in last week's sermon, let's take a few minutes to do this, I went to Titus chapter 1, and it gives the qualifications of an elder or a pastor, and one of the important qualifications was this. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's the positive, right? Give instruction in sound doctrine, that's the positive, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So to be able to teach sound doctrine... And to be able to rebuke what is contrary to sound doctrine is a necessary prerequisite for an elder or for a pastor. Well, why would that be the case? Because there are many, Jesus says, many false prophets. So I'm going to run over the the, the points from last Sunday's sermon. Point number one, these were the nine marks of a false teacher from last Sunday. Number one, 
they disguised themselves as servants of righteousness. They're wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are up to no good. They are, inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Let me just reread one text from last week. Paul speaks of men who are, quote, false apostles, deceitful workmen, this is 2 Corinthians 11, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And then Paul says their end will correspond to their deeds. So number one, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Number two, they reject the narrow way. They are trying to broaden the path of salvation to include, in some cases, not just Jesus as the Savior, but other saviors, which is an extreme form of false teaching. You know, as long as you're a sincere Buddhist or a sincere Muslim or a sincere Hindu or a sincere Christian, all roads lead to the top of the mountain. Just be a sincere follower of your path, and that's kind of the Oprah Winfrey view of religion and theology. As long as you're a good follower of your religion, it doesn't matter. Choose your own religion, but as, as long as you follow it sincerely, you'll make it to the top. That's broadening the, the gate. But also, there are ways to broaden the narrow path to where unholy conduct is in some way approved so that people can broaden the path. Number three, these false teachers sound attractive to our flesh. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Second Timothy, people will gather for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So whenever teaching is coddling our flesh, it is letting our sinful nature have its way, that is a telltale mark that you're dealing with false and destructive teaching. Number four, these teachers are often popular. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you, for so they said that of the false prophets. Number five, they often allow idolatry. We talked about how there are subtle ways to do that today. For instance, letting your, your ambitions for yourself, your selfish ambition, be taught as God's goal for your life, that your dreams, unquestioned, unfiltered through the lens of possible sins and idols, should just be what we follow and that God is going to give us our dreams. We need to be aware of idols that are allowed to flourish in false teaching. Number six, they twist Scripture to their own destruction. 2 Peter 3.16 says, they twist God's word. They, listen, they are going to quote Scripture. The false teachers are going to quote the Bible. Satan quoted the Bible when he was tempting Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91. Satan knows chapter and verse, and the false teachers will quote Scripture. And so this is why we must know our Bible so that we can know when someone's using a text out of context and misusing it, can we flag that? Do we know in context that's not what that verse truly means. Number seven, they often allow, through their teaching, sexual immorality. We heard this in 2 Peter. They have eyes full of adultery. Jude said they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They often allow leeway in regards to sexual sin and promiscuity. Number eight, they often deny God's wrath. Number Satan, Genesis 3, the second thing he said, you will not surely die a denial of God's wrath. And number nine, they speak like the world. First John, they speak from the world. Excuse me, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of of error. So that's last week's sermon. I don't normally do reviews. I know that that can feel tedious, but I wanted you to catch up to speed with where we're going today. And now we're going to move into the new material for this Sunday. This is eight more marks of a false teacher. 
Before I get into these additional marks, and uh, so today my first point is going to be point number 10, if that makes sense, okay? So we're just building off the nine marks from last week. We're going to move into point 10 in just a moment. Can you turn with me to Acts chapter 20 in your Bible? Acts chapter 20. You remember, this is a wonderful scene. We went through it a couple of years ago. Paul is going to gather together. He does gather together at Miletus, the Ephesian elders. Paul had been part of that church in Ephesus, start, starting that church and building it up for a couple of years. Paul ministered there, and he trained up some godly men who, was, who he was able to entrust with the gospel. And when Paul left, uh, he wanted to see them one last time. And he gathers all the elders on the shore there, and he charges them one last time. And this is amazing because this is not one of my points, but here's why I want to bring this up. False teachers, listen to me, false teachers can come from anywhere. They can come from men that Paul trained and put into eldership. The the men Paul himself personally would have trained during his years in Ephesus, they became elders. And Paul says, gives a warning that even amongst that group, false teachers will arise. Look at Chapter 20, verse 28 of Acts. Acts 20, verse 28, Paul says, To the elders of the church that he himself founded, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, the whole church at Ephesus, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for or shepherd the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure... Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From among your own selves. Paul's looking at this group. I don't know how many men this is. Is it 10? Is it 20? Is it more? I don't know. He's looking at the elders and he says, listen, beware of wolves. It is not impossible that wolves will arrive from this very group of men I am talking to right now, from among your own selves, wolves uh, will arise, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So we need to be aware, no matter where a person comes from or what seminary they went to, we need to, we need to know, we need to test them by God's Word and not just assume because of their background that they are going to be reliable. Okay, point number 10, which is my first point officially in this sermon. This is point number 10, building off last Sunday. So point number 10 on marks of a false teacher, and if you go ahead, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and I won't get you, I'm not going to get you to turn to all of the text today, that would just be too many, but Colossians 2 would be a great place to turn for a moment. And point number 10 is this, they fail to truly help people fight their sin. They fail to truly help people fight their sin. Look at Colossians 2.23, down toward the end of the chapter. Paul speaks of some false teachers. He says this, Colossians 2.23, They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. See, these false teachers had a religious method severity to the body, mistreatment of the body, but they were not actually helping their listeners to fight and kill their own sin. See, their their self-righteous religion is what they were teaching. Well, think about this. If you are going to fast out of prideful reasons, if you're going to be severe in the treatment of your physical body out of proud, self-righteous reasons, if you're going to do the right thing for proud, egotistical, pharisaical reasons, 
at the end of the day, outwardly, are you going to look holy? Yes, to a degree. Inwardly, is your sin actually being dealt with? No. Paul says these practices, without the gospel, without the true gospel of Jesus, these religious practices are nothing more than self-made religion, severity to the body, but have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You're just going to become a very proud religious person, right? So the, the false teachers don't actually help us put our real sins to death. They teach false systems that don't do that. You won't have time to turn to all these. First Timothy 6, 2, Paul says this, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, listen to that again. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Do you hear that? Following the pattern of words of Jesus and the biblical doctrines leads to godliness. Paul calls it the teaching that accords with, that agrees with, that creates godliness. So, right biblical teaching by the power of the Spirit creates godliness. It's the teaching that accords with godliness. Those who reject that teaching, and he says, teach a different doctrine, promote pride and conceit and do not understand anything rightly. So, false teaching is going to lead to more sin, not less. Turn to 2 Timothy 3, to your right a bit, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is a depressing paragraph. I, I grant you that, but we need to know about this stuff. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I always, always need to make clear, when he says in the last days, he's talking about the time between Jesus' ascension and now and when Jesus comes back. So he's talking about the whole church age when he says the last days. It includes right now. And as I read this, I want you to realize he is talking primarily about people in the church, people who call themselves Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 3 starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, that's now, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Now just stop here. Is there false teaching that promotes loving self and loving money in the church? Loving self and loving money, is that taught as doctrine? I heard one TV preacher, and I'm not making this up. He said into a camera on international television, there's nothing on earth as beautiful as a $100 bill. That's what he said into the TV. He was preaching on money. And he said, there's nothing on earth as beautiful as a $100 bill. Then later he said, I wrote it down on a napkin because I was shocked by this. He then later said, if anyone tells you money doesn't make you happy, they just hadn't had enough. That was his sermon. His name is Mike Murdoch. He is one of the worst of the worst on television. So, Yes, Paul is right. Paul rightly predicted that within the church, loving self and loving money would be in the church as false teaching. Now, let's keep going. In the last days, there will be times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, look. He's not talking about people outside the church. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of what? Godliness, but denying its power. That's wolves in sheep's clothing. The appearance of godliness, they look like sheep. 
Do they have the power of godliness? No, they have, they're wolf-like on the inside. They love self, money, pleasure. They don't obey authority. That's their inside self. But outwardly, they look godly. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. And Paul says flatly, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, do you see it there? By the way, do people today take advantage of weak people in our country on Christian television? I just watched a story this week about a couple who was in financial trouble. They were in debt, and they told the people around them that they needed to borrow money from their parents and relatives, and they lied. And they said, we were borrowing this money to pay off our debts, but they were actually borrowing the money to give it to a televangelist. And they got the money, they got over $4,000 together, cobbled it together, and they mailed it to a TV evangelist who was actually proven to be a fraud even publicly not long after that. And they interviewed the woman, and she says, I feel like a fool. I cannot believe I did that. But this teaching, which exploits weak people, is not going to help us fight our sin truly. All right, point number 11. Marks of a false teacher, mark number 11. And this goes right in with what I just said. They exploit the sheep financially. They exploit the sheep financially. I'm not sure that there's a single mark of a false teacher in the Bible that's more prominent than this one. It's everywhere. When you hear about false teachers, you're going to hear about them exploiting people with greed and self-indulgence all over the Bible. I'll just give you a Okay, are you ready to listen to a bunch of quick verses, okay? Just listen to all these texts. I don't even have all of them here, I don't think. Titus 1 says this. They, are, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families, teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. 2 Peter 2.3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Exploit you for what? your money. In their greed for money, they exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Jude 1.11, woe to them, this is Jesus' half-brother, okay, Jude, woe to them, for they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Remember Balaam in Numbers, the strange guy gets rebuked by his donkey? Do you remember this guy? Balaam was a prophet for hire, and he was willing for money to curse Israel. He was hired by a king to curse Israel, and he was going to do that for money. And then on the way there, God overpowered him so that when he went to, to curse Israel, what comes out of his mouth? Blessings. He ends up predicting the Messiah, essentially. He says, a star will come out of Jacob. He's predicting the Bethlehem star all of a sudden. He's like, what's going on here? Every time he tries to curse Israel, promises of blessing come out of his mouth, and God overturned his curse into a blessing. But Balaam was not trying to be a good guy. He was in it for the money. He was prophet for hire, and yet God overturned his curse into a blessing. Second Peter 2 says the same thing. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. 1 Timothy 6.5. Paul speaks of people, quote, of a depraved mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, like financial gain. And then Paul adds that wonderful statement. He says godliness is a, a way of gain. And then he explains what he means. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, Paul says it's not about the money. It's about knowing Christ. True godliness is satisfaction in Jesus, not money. Paul says there is tremendous gain in godliness. It's not financial. It's knowing Jesus. There is tremendous 
stability and satisfaction and joy and peace. You know, what, what does Hebrews 13 say? It says, don't, don't be a lover of money, right? Don't, don't trust in money. Why? Because God has promised you, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. What can man do to me? In other words, God is our stability. We don't need to worry ultimately about that. Ezekiel 34 says this. Now, this is where Jesus is talking when Jesus says that they come to you like ravenous wolves. That comes from the Old Testament. Listen to this. Ezekiel 34 verse 2. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. They're, they're wolves, right? Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. Chapter 22, verse 27 of Ezekiel. Her princes in her midst are like wolves, tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. The wolf is feeding off the money of the sheep. That's what the wolf does. The wolf says, I'm here to honor God. I'm here to praise God. And then all, all the while, they're, they're trying to get the money from the people. And I, I, I know we can throw stories around like this. I'm not going to do this every week, but this is what the text is about. So I'm going to share a story that matches the text on this point. The, 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 the televangelist I was mentioning a moment ago, his name was Peter Popoff. Peter Popoff was huge in the 1980s. You may have heard of him. He's back on TV now, which is astonishing to me. But in the 1980s, he had this thing where he would have these rallies. He'd have hundreds and hundreds of people in the room, and he would walk around, and he would start calling people out. He'd say, okay, I get a feeling right now that there's a woman in here named Deborah Smith. Is that right? Deborah Smith, are you in the room? And then she would raise her hand and say, okay, I, you have had lower back pain and arthritis in your hands. Is that right? She's like, yeah, how did you? And you live at 1216 Springdale Drive. You're exactly right. Come up here. And he would put his hands on her. He'd hit her in the forehead, you know, like he kind of taps her on the forehead. And she kind of starts shaking. And he supposedly healed her right there. And he raises all this money. Well, some guy was noticing that he had, he had looked like a hearing aid in his ear, which is kind of interesting. If, if you're a faith healer and you have a hearing aid, it's an interesting idea. So this guy had a hearing aid. So the guy came in, this, this, this guy snuck into one of his crusades and he had a radio frequency dial. And he started listening in different radio frequencies. All of a sudden, he found a new radio frequency in the room and he heard footsteps. And they actually played the audio because he recorded it. You hear footsteps. All of a sudden you hear, Peter, I hope you can hear me. If you can't hear me, you're going to be in big trouble who is talking, Peter Popoff's wife backstage is talking to him through an earpiece. And she has all the information of the people in the room who are sick because they filled out a questionnaire before they came to the crusade. And so she reads the information. Sitting in seat 3A with a hearing disorder is a woman named Deborah Smith or whatever, whatever it is. And so he would, say, he would say all the information. Of course, they showed this on national television. It was actually released on a Johnny Carson show in the 1980s. The guy came on and showed everybody on Johnny Carson, and it was all a big scandal. And now he's back on TV again selling Miracle Springs Water. So here's my point. Here's my point. That is a textbook definition of a wolf. He is saying, praise God, hallelujah, glory to Jesus. And what's he doing? He's trying to gather the finances of very vulnerable, poor people who are sick. And he is saying things that are blatantly false in the name of religion for the good of his own uh, bank account at the end of the day. Now, Paul gives a contrast with this with himself. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians 2.17. Listen to what a true apostle shepherd should look like. Paul says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word. I'm not here selling to make a profit, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Or 1 Peter 5.2, Peter says this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. It's, the payoff should be the joy of the job, not the shameful game. Okay, we're moving on now to point number 12. 
They undermine the authority of Scripture. Point number 12, they undermine the authority of Scripture. And I've got three sub-points on how this works. So three, there's, there's way more than three. I'm just going to give you three that I saw. So three ways that they undermine the authority of Scripture. Point, there's a sub-point under 12. Number one, by rejecting parts of the Bible. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Listen to this. Paul says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet, talking about false prophets, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Did, people sometimes ask, did Paul know he was writing the very words of God when he wrote 1 Corinthians? The answer is, yes, he did. Paul knew that the things he was writing were the command, were, where he says, a command of the Lord. And if someone rejects Paul's letter, Paul says that person should not be recognized. Did Paul, that's, you understand, that's either the most arrogant thing you could ever say about a letter you wrote, or you're speaking on behalf of God. There's no middle ground with Paul. Either he was, it's like liar, lunatic, or Lord. You ever heard that with, you can do that with the Apostle Paul. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or a true apostle. I mean, there's no other way to explain the Apostle Paul. He's saying, if you don't acknowledge that my words are God's words, you should be kicked out of the church. That's either unbelievable arrogance and sinful and wicked, or he's speaking as God's messenger, and therefore it is totally right and true. And so here's my point. Rejecting parts of Scripture is the telltale sign of a false teacher. When they throw things out, sometimes they'll say, hey, the red letters in the Bible, that's the real stuff. When it's Jesus talking, I got, nothing, I got a red letter Bible, I got nothing against it, as long as we don't elevate the red letters above the black letters. It's all God's Word. Sometimes people say, well, Paul said that about whatever issue, but Jesus never mentioned that, so I'm going to go with Jesus against Paul. No, no. We never pit parts of Scripture against other parts of Scripture. We never delete part of Scripture because of another part of Scripture. All of Scripture is God-breathed. It is all profitable. It is all useful for teaching, reproof, for correction, training, in righteousness that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let me give you just a brazen example of someone rejecting the Bible. And I, I mentioned him. No one follows him anymore from the church that I know of. But 15 years ago, he was huge. When I was graduating high school, he wrote his first book. His name is Rob Bell. Uh, no one, again, is, is being hoodwinked by Rob Bell that I know of in the church anymore because he's so clearly not a, a Christian. But here's, here's what I will say. When I was in high school, uh, I had friends who bought his book in my class. I had, when I went to college, people had his book, Velvet Elvis, on the shelf. In a college class I had, we read a Rob Bell book, Velvet Elvis. We had to do reports on his book. And I was one of the only people uh, attacking the book while everyone around me seemed to be defending this guy, saying, you know, he, you, you, no, he's a good guy. Okay, now let me just give you a, a quote from him a few years ago while he was being interviewed by Oprah. This man used to be a pastor of a megachurch. He was one of the best-selling Christian authors of the late 2000s, right? 2005 to 2010, his books were cranking out copies. I mean, I've been in a youth room not too far from here where there was a stack of his DVDs in the corner of the room. I've, I've been at a youth event with 375 kids, this is years ago, where the, the main speaker on Friday night was Rob Bell on the video. It was a video of Rob Bell talking. I mean, I, I, I've had people get very mad at me for saying I did not think Rob Bell was a genuine teacher years ago. Now everyone sees it, but let me quote Rob Bell while he's being interviewed by Oprah. Does he devalue God's word? Listen to these breathtaking words from someone who used to be a megachurch pastor Rob Bell, he's discussing gay marriage with Oprah, quote, I think the culture is already there, accepting, and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense 
when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other and they just want to go through life with someone. Oprah said, well, you sound really progressive to me, which I said, yes, he does. Now, let me read part of that again, because this is critical. Again, I was at a youth event in Athens, Georgia, with almost 400 youth kids, and he was the speaker. This is 15 years ago. But listen to what he said later. Again, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense when you have in front of you flesh and blood people. You see what he just did, right? He took the Bible, and he calls it old letters from 2,000 years ago, and he devalues it down here. And what does he put above it as his authority? Your uncle. I'm not kidding. That's in the quote. You have brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, co-workers, and neighbors. So, so your uncle just took on more authority than, 2000, than the book of Romans. So the book of Romans is down here, 2,000-year-old letter, and your uncle is here. I mean, maybe you think your uncle's great. He's not that great, okay? Okay, he's not that great. So he just elevated. So, so you see what's happening? I mean, I'm being silly, but let me be serious here. You see what he's doing? He's taking popular opinion and saying that's more important than what the Bible says. So he's devaluing and discrediting Scripture, and he's putting human opinion, popular opinion, above what Scripture actually says. Okay, sub-point number two, they don't just reject parts of the Bible like Rob Bell just throws the letters of the New Testament out. Number two, they tamper with God's Word. Tamper with God's Word. Listen to 2 Corinthians 2. Paul says this, We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Don't you know when someone's being underhanded? They're, they're manipulating. They're not being totally truthful. We, we renounce underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by, I love this part, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's something to live by. L- listen to this. We don't edit this book. We don't tamper with it. We don't emphasize the parts the culture likes and remove the parts the culture doesn't like. No, we have an, he calls it an open statement of the truth. He just lays the truth right out there. In, in Acts 20, he says, I, I taught you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. Says, By the open statement of truth, I'm just laying, I'm just telling you what it said. Vodi Bakum said, I am not the author of the Bible. I'm just the mailman. Right? I, I just take God's letters and I give them to you. I just, I just take God's word and I give it to you. So he said, I, I didn't write it. I, I, I'm just the, the mailman. And the mailman has one job, to give you the mail. He's not writing the letter. He takes someone else's letter and gives it to you. And so Paul says, I'm, I'm just I'm the open statement of truth. And then what's his point? I want to commend myself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. See, even non-Christians can get the TBN people online, all the Benny Hens and stuff. People see that and they know it's terrible. Non-Christians make fun of it all the time. Like, this is absurd. They're obviously in it for the money. They're asking for a $65 million jet. As Creflo Dollar said in Atlanta a few years ago, if I want to believe God for a $65 million jet, you cannot stop me. And so he's raising $65 million for his private jet to preach the gospel around the world. Everybody can see through that. I mean, almost everybody can see straight through that. That's obviously not right. But here, Paul says the opposite is this. Open statement of the truth I'm not hiding anything. What this word says is what I want to tell you it says. And when you act that way, even if people don't like the truth, their own conscience will tell them you're being legitimate. You get that? There's a kind of strange respect. I think about, remember um, back in the day, John MacArthur used to go on Larry King Live a lot. Do you remember this? They're on YouTube. You should go watch them. They're fantastic. But Larry King was, you know, ethnically Jewish, but he was not religiously Jewish, and he was not Christian, certainly not. 
And Larry King loved having John MacArthur on his show, which was always strange to me because MacArthur would just tell it like it is. He's just like this open statement of the truth, just very direct. And Larry King loved having him on. And Larry King even had John MacArthur over for dinner one time at his house. I would, would you have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that conversation? And as John MacArthur was leaving, John MacArthur said, Larry King looked at him. I don't know if he hugged him or something. But he looked at him and said, I love you, John MacArthur. <laughs> just like, wow. Well, what's going on? I am, I am, I mean, I'm giving you my opinion. I don't think I can prove this. I think Larry King was drawn to MacArthur because of what Paul just said here. By the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He knew, even if he disagreed with MacArthur, he knew that MacArthur was going to say what he believed the Bible said. And I think there was a certain kind of respect that Larry King had for that. So we, we want to be like that. We want to have an open statement of the truth, and people just know you're being honest with the text of Scripture. Okay, subpoint number three. So it was tampering with God's word. Subpoint number three, by claiming God has spoken to us when he has not. This is how we distort or twist, undermine God's word. Claiming God has spoken when he has not. I won't read all these, but there's a lot of verses. I'll give you one. Jeremiah 14, 14. The Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them nor did I command them to speak or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land, by sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. Okay, I want to make a, I don't want to be too intense in the way I say this. I hope this is gentle in the way I say this, but this is something I need to say. I don't think this has mainly been coming out of a defiance of God's word, but I do think it's become way too popular, and I would like to see this disappear. I want us to, and I'm not talking necessarily any individual, I'm just saying this is something I see a lot in the Southern Bible Belt. People frequently say, I don't think they mean much by this, but it's not the right way to talk. They will say, God told me blank. I've heard that so many times in my life. God told me to tell you this. Or God, I was having my quiet time last night, and God spoke to me and said this, and God told me that, and God told me the other. I don't think people generally are thinking about what they mean by that. But you understand, if we're, if we're going to take that at total seriousness, you understand. If it is true that God told you that new sentence last night in your quiet time, then that sentence is equal in authority to the Scripture. Because it would be an infallible word from heaven, which is the only kind of word God speaks. Infallible. So now you've got a word from God you got personally that is of equal authority to God's word in Scripture. Do you see the problem with that? Suddenly you're undermining what? The sufficiency of God's word? Suddenly you're an independent authority speaking straight from heaven? No, no, no. We, I don't think people often mean it. I don't think they're thinking, but I, I would prefer to speak like, like um, uh, you know, I think it might be wise to consider blank. Or I've been thinking and praying about this, and I, I think it might be wise. What, what do you think about this? Rather than saying, God told me blank. That, I think, is putting us in a level of authority that I don't know that we intend it, but I think it undermines the sufficiency and authority of God's word. So the prophets are condemned when they speak lies in God's name, saying God spoke to me when he did not. Okay, back to the main points. I'm going to get lost here soon, okay? We are at point number 13. Does that sound right? Point number 13, okay. They preach another gospel. I realize this could have been the first point, but here we go. Okay, this is one of the most important points. They preach another gospel. Let me read this, 2 John, verses 7 to 11. Listen to this. For many deceivers 
have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but win a full reward. Listen to this. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide or stay in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You hear that? Anyone who does not abide, stay in the true gospel, but goes on and progresses past the truth, they don't have, they don't have God. And he says, whoever abides in the teaching, the gospel teaching, whoever stays, abides in it, has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this gospel, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. How about Galatians 1? You know this one. Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. Then he says here, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven were to teach to you another gospel, let him be accursed. I say to you again, if anyone teaches another gospel, let him be accursed. Now, how could the gospel be, how can another gospel be preached? There's a lot of ways, but I'll give you a couple simple things. Number one, this is very popular is why I'm mentioning it. They deny the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ to the believer by faith alone. Okay? If you're new to Christianity, you're not sure about Christianity, let me just very quickly summarize what that doctrine is. In my sinfulness, I deserve God's judgment. Jesus lived a sinless life. When I trust in Jesus... His perfect life is counted as mine, even though I am not perfect. Okay, So his perfect life is credited as mine by faith alone. And that doctrine is often a doctrine that gets attacked and denied by many, and that is an essential part of the true gospel. I'm going to move on. Point number 14. They teach so as to please man, not God. They teach... So as to please man, not God. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'll start in the, you'll see Paul's willingness to suffer. I'll start in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impure or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests the heart. Now look at verse 5. For we, came with wor- we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, 
because you have become very dear to us. The reason why pleasing man is such a problem is because it will again lead to editing the message that God has given. Okay, let's move on to the next point, point number 15. Turn with me to Matthew 20, Matthew chapter 20. Point number 15 is they act like lords, not servants. They act like lords and not servants. Matthew chapter 20. Look what Jesus says, verse 25. They act like lords, not servants, the false teachers. Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We hear in the New Testament of the possibility of people serving other gods. Here's Paul's point, or excuse me, Jesus' point. I have every right, he says, to come and to be served by you. I am the true Lord of Lords. But how did I come? I came humble as a servant. We'll see on Thursday, he washes the disciples' feet, and then far more than that, he takes their sins on the cross. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many, and those who follow him should act in the same way. Humble service rather than a dictatorship or a lordship should mark the true teacher. All right, the... uh, Let's move to point number uh, 16. They may teach mysticism and asceticism. I'm going to read from Colossians 2. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. So I want to give a couple examples of this. These are people who go on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. I'm just going to mention a couple things real quick. Books that have sold a lot of copies in the last 25 years are what have been sort of dubbed heaven tourism books. They also have hell tourism books. 23 Minutes in Hell, 90 Minutes in Heaven, The Boy Who Went to Heaven. You've, you've heard of all these books and movies. So I've got one of the classic ones. One of the, one of the first ones is 90 Minutes in Heaven. I always have to pronounce his name very carefully. Don Piper. Okay. Uh, not be confused what Piper we're talking about. So this is Don Piper, very different Piper. And um, Don Piper wrote the, one of the early books. And at the time of this printing, this is an old printing. This is like 2004. It had sold half a million copies. I'm sure it's sold millions since then. I'm just going to read you one little quote. This is a guy who claims he went to heaven during his 90 minutes after his car accident when he apparently had, had died. Uh, and he, here is just a little sample of what he saw. Quote, this is straight out of the book. As I stood before the gate of heaven, I didn't think of it, but later I realized that I did not hear songs as, such as the old rugged cross or the nail-scarred hand. None, now listen, none of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. In heaven. None of the songs, none of the hymns that filled the air were about Jesus' sacrifice or death. I heard no sad songs and instinctively knew that there were no sad songs in heaven. Why would there be? All were praises about Christ's reign as King of Kings and our joyful worship for all He has done for us and how wonderful He is. 
Now, you already know he's making this up because Revelation 5, in heaven, they say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So, when I look at the Bible, in heaven, they're singing the song about the cross, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In this guy's book, he says, if, when you get to heaven, there won't be any songs about the cross. Okay, now you've got to choose who you're going to believe, Don Piper or the book of Revelation. <laughs> okay, and that, it's not a very hard choice, I hope, to make. Another book that was very big, sold over a million copies, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven by uh, Alex Malarkey. I know his name is Malarkey. I know that that is true. Uh, I don't know what to say about that. Now, I mentioned this last summer. It's an actually tragic story in almost every way you can imagine. This boy was in a terrible car accident, was paralyzed to this day. Uh, he, he is, he's paralyzed. He's in his 20s now. And here's, here's the important point, okay? Again, it sold, Lifeway sold over a million copies with this. He wrote a letter to Lifeway, the publisher, and this is what the, the boy in the wheelchair, Alex Malarkey, said this. I've read this before. I want to read it again. An open letter to Lifeway and other sellers and buyers and marketers of heaven tourism by the boy who did not come back from heaven. From, from, the boy who did not come back from heaven. Quote, please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins, even though He committed none of His own, so that you could be forgiven, may you learn of heaven outside, uh, outside of what is written in the Bible. In other words, by going to heaven one day with Christ after death, we can learn more about heaven. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough in Christ Alex Malarkey. So you see here, these books are some of the best-selling books of the last two or three decades, and yet they are not where we go to learn about heaven and hell. We should go to Scripture. It has all we need to know on that topic. All right, our last point. This is point number 17. They are, the false teachers are, waterless clouds. Do you recognize that phrase from the New Testament, waterless clouds? So, Listen to this, Proverbs 25, 14 first uses this phrase, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Like clouds without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he doesn't give, right? You get this? Agricultural society, you depend on rain for the crops, you desperately need rain. You look up, you see huge clouds coming over your land, you get excited, they're going to give us rain, we're, gonna, we're not going to starve, we're, we're going to have produce this year, and this giant cloud blows right over your land. It's a cloud without rain. It, it promises much, it delivers nothing. That's what these false teachers ultimately do. Listen to Jude chapter 1. These are hidden reefs at your love feast, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their shame, for whom the darkness has been reserved forever. Second Peter 2, these are waterless springs. You're in the desert. You're dying of thirst. You come to a spring, and there's no water coming out. They're waterless springs, mist driven by the storm, for then the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And here's what Paul, Peter explains what he means. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They promise they, they're a big cloud on, on a hot day saying, I'm going to give you freedom. And they offer you this alternate path, the broad path. And they invite you to come down the way of sensual desire and sin and greed and sexual morality. They say, come with us. It will be, this is God's grace is turning into licentiousness. And you begin to follow them. You lose your stability and you follow them. And what seemed like it was going to give rain and satisfaction ends up 
leaving you broken and enslaved to what cannot ultimately satisfy us. The good news is that in Jesus we have the true shepherd in Christ. Jesus always speaks the truth. He is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He serves us even though we deserve to serve Him. He offered up His life to rescue us, and He will never, ever forsake us. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, I again ask not that we would have a self-righteous demeanor as we think about false teachers, but that you would instead give us a holy fear that we ourselves not delve into false teaching, that we would stay true to your word, that you would show us the error of our ways wherever we are in error. God, I pray that you would help us to not be deceived just because something is popular or on Christian TV or a Christian publisher publishes the book. I pray that you would give us discernment. I pray we would be able to obey Jesus' command to beware of false prophets, for they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. God, I pray that you would protect us from false teachers and that you would help us to speak the truth to our neighbor in love. And I pray we would be built up by that truth, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.